0: Welcome to The Dinner Party. This is your icebreaker.
1: Okay, here's a joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? The KGB. KGB who? We will ask the questions!
2: I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party. The culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations and where we will ask the questions. Duh. You just
0: got a joke from <laughs> Lee Bardugo. That'll help break the ice. Lee wrote the new young adult novel Shadow and Bone, and we'll hear from her later. We're also going to interrogate master filmmaker Michael
2: Apted, director of the new documentary 56 Up. Also, blues legend Buddy Guy talks about his first gig. We hear a new song from King Tough and we sink our teeth into some sticky pork rolls. Yes, Mm.
0: actually we don't even use our teeth, we just inhale the rolls. We just inhale them. It is quite a show. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing
3: these headlines. The Defense of Marriage Act in Massachusetts now ruled unconstitutional. The Kings and Devils score off for hockey's holy grail, the Stanley Cup.
4: In the John Edwards trial, not guilty on one charge, mistrial on the other five charges. Now for
0: a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Richard Lawson. He is a senior writer at the Atlantic Wire. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about a very
5: exciting new robot that is (laughs) capable of deboning chickens. What? And it's being hailed as quote, this is according to the Wall Street Journal, a holy grail project and revolutionary. Pretty big deal. That's
2: so they're going to be robots with knives that can debone things. Yes. That's pretty <laughs> Frightening deal. Right. right? Well,
5: exactly. They start with (laughs) dead chickens, but, you know, who Who knows? knows? what? Why is this uh, such a big deal? They have wanted to do this for a long time because, I guess, people doing it on a production line is is sort of inefficient and would like speed everything up and, you know, the world of chicken as we know it would change. And the guy (laughs) working on this apparently has started his career at NASA and has worked for the military making robots that can detect terrorist bombs. But his real passion project is this chicken deboner. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and to take <laughs> jobs away from people who do bone chicken. That's well, right. yeah, that yeah. is that is a concern obviously. <laughs> yeah. But
5: Fabulous. you know, there's a uh, pictures of this guy with this big crazy robot arm and everyone seems very excited. So,
0: <laughs> who are we to really judge? It's just a big arm. It doesn't it doesn't look like the terminator. Yeah, no, I mean it
5: doesn't look remotely human and they're practicing it right now on rubber chickens. So Real the
2: comedy in industry must be upset because the rubber chickens <laughs> right. are exactly. scarce.
0: It's bad for a lot of
2: people, actually, now that we
0: think about it. yeah. And all this so we can have boneless chicken for our McNuggets.
5: Yeah, and, and I, I guess the concern from the food service industry is that the robots won't be able to check to see if they got all the bones. So they might have to have a human oversee the robot, which seems to defeat the purpose.
0: Because <laughs> wow. if a bone shows up in a chicken nugget, I'll be like, wait, is this a chicken nugget? It has something <laughs> right. resembling yeah. an actual chicken in it.
2: <laughs> but are you going to be bold enough to tell the chicken deboning robot that it was wrong.
0: No way. he might debone you. (laughs) We'll just be floppy humans. Right. Richard Lawson, thanks so much for the uh, fairly disturbing news. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) And And
2: now we need some cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our thirst-quenching history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week, back in 1678, the city of Coventry, England, first celebrated Lady Godiva. Now,
0: the folks at your dinner party might know that Godiva rode nude on horseback, but there is more to the story. Michelle Philippi uncovers the semi-truth.
6: Lady Godiva might be history's first tax hawk. It was the year 1057, and Godiva was married to an earl, Leofric. Apparently, she was the moral one in the couple. While she bestowed artworks on churches and funded monasteries, he was busy taxing the people of Coventry into poverty. That didn't sit well with Godiva. She pestered Leofric to ease up, and finally he lay down a dare. He'd revoke the taxes if she took a spin through the city on horseback in her birthday suit. You know the rest the godly Ms. Godiva trotted through town au naturel, and her surprised husband banned taxes. Except the one on horses. Hundreds of years later, Coventry first celebrated this pious act with a reenactment, the Godiva Procession. But did the ride really happen? Some think it's a myth that the procession was just a Christian replacement for a pagan festival. And some details of the story were probably added later by squares, Like the story of Peeping Tom, who peeped at the nude Godiva and was struck blind. One thing's sure, the procession still happens today, with the stand-in lady discreetly draped in something sheer.
2: So that's the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Robert Wood. He is the bar manager at the Kenilworth in Kenilworth, England, right outside of Coventry. And he's going to make us a drink based on Lady Godiva. Robert, this should be easy, right? Creating a drink that makes people take their clothes off.
7: Really easy. <laughs> That's exactly what cocktails are made for.
2: All right. So,
7: uh, what did it inspire you to make? Well, we've created a drink called The Peeping Tom.
2: Of course. So, um, what's in the cocktail?
7: A very specific tequila called Arete Reposado, a slightly aged tequila for its kind of aged notes. But most notably, we're using uh, this brand of Arete because the the logo is a horse. (laughs) All right. Um, So we have that element there from the legend, of course. Now, what we also do is we add just a tablespoon of Godiva Original Chocolate Liqueur. Right, tablespoon of an Italian vermouth called Puntimez. All right. And then, of course, because Kenworth has some absolutely fantastic apiaries and we use some really nice local honey. And then I uh, kind of a a, a nod. Um, we call this the peeping Ron element. Um, <laughs> there's a, a new room on the market at the moment called Ronda Jeremy. Uh, Ron Jeremy <laughs> himself has created his own room.
2: The, the porno star, Ron Jeremy. Indeed. Who actually, to protest taxes, probably puts clothes on.
7: Right. Okay. So, so we have just a little dash of that and a little dash of uh, something called Bitterman's mole Bitters. So that's like a chocolate bitters thing? Indeed, yeah. Shake this up, uh, and then we pour it over um, into a glass with no ice in it, and you get that beautiful kind of sweet chocolate aroma.
2: Wow. And so I, I just have a question. Are there is there someone walking around naked around you right now? Because it sounds like a party in there.
7: Of course. I mean, <laughs> it's time to practice around here.
2: So, Rico, it sounds to me like Lady Godiva was, you know, an early member of the Tea Party. Exactly. Yes. I was thinking the same thing. Fighting taxes.
0: Except instead of dressing up like a founding father, she dressed way down.
2: Yeah. But, you know, if Tea Party people got naked, they'd be thrown in jail, which caused taxes. And so, you know. It's a vicious cycle. It's endless.
0: Uh, (laughs) Fortunately, we have cocktail recipes for all political persuasions. And you can find them at our website, people, dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is
0: author Lee Bardugo. Her debut novel comes out this coming week. It is the first installment in her young adult fantasy series entitled The Grisha Trilogy. It's set in a pretty unique fictional world. Here's Lee to tell us about it and list some of her other favorite non existent places.
1: Hi, I'm Lee Bardugo. I'm the author of Shadow and Bone, a young adult fantasy novel set in a world inspired by Tsarist Russia. Everybody always wants to know why Tsarist Russia, and honestly, the big reason is it's not medieval England. <laughs> I felt like that was territory that had been explored by a lot of amazing authors, and I wanted to take readers someplace new. I came across this Russian Imperial Atlas, unless you think it was some beautiful leather bound book. It was just some ugly textbook from the 80s. But there was a cover picture on it of three men in coats and fur hats in the snow, standing in front of a palace by a sledge. And I knew this was the right fit for the story I wanted to tell. So here's my list of my favorite fantasy worlds created by other authors. My first choice are the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, created by George R. R. Martin in his series A Song of Ice and Fire, which you may know better by the title of the first book, Game of Thrones. He takes the geographical characteristics of a place and has them inform every aspect of that world. And my favorite example of it is this damp corner of the Seven Kingdoms called the Iron Islands. And they're basically these miserable... <laughs> Cold, wet clumps of rock. Besieged by storms, they have no natural resources, and consequently, their entire culture is built up around pillaging. Every part of this society reflects that. The ruling house is House Greyjoy, so you can even hear in the language that it's damp. Their house words are, we do not sow, meaning they don't have any fields to till, so they have to go out and steal other people's stuff. Their religion is the drowned god. It's everywhere, and most importantly, it's in the worldview of the people, this bleak, ruthless kind of dignity. Honestly, when I read the first three books of... A Song of Ice and Fire, I didn't write for two months afterwards. They were so good. Number two on my list is actually a movie from the early 1980s called Rock and Roll. It is animated and a little kinky and truly deeply disturbing. We had pirated cable as a kid and I saw this probably a thousand times when I should not have been seeing it. But the premise of the story is that after World War III with the Soviets, because it was the 80s, all that's left are hybrid humanoids of cats and humans, rats and humans, and dogs and humans. Debbie Harry does one of the voices, and both Iggy Pop and Lou Reed lend their voices to mock the aging rock star who is trying to bring about the end of the world.
8: My name is Monk. I'm on fire. I'm the
1: patch.
8: And I'm the fire. I'm the wu
0: Black musician priest white. I'm the greatest thing since World
1: War 3. I think as a kid it was one of the first references I had for a post nuclear world. It's post-apocalyptic, which has been really popular lately, and I think it has this fantastically bleak humor that's missing from a lot of um, dystopians and post-apocalyptics that are out there right now. This is kind of the way that I always looked at natural disasters ever after and man-made disasters, was that the results were not going to be just tragedy and death and unrest, but possibly a freaked-out society with punk rock in it. The third choice on my list was really difficult to narrow down. I ended up going with The Kingdom of Ingury from Diana Wynne-Jones' classic Howl's Moving Castle. The movie is lovely, but the book is extraordinary, and she was a remarkable writer. Um, The story centers around a girl named Sophie Hatter who works in a hat shop and has the magical ability of being able to talk life into objects. The thing I love about Diana Wynne Jones is that with a lot of fantasy, when people start getting into modern fairy tales and that kind of thing, it can get really twee really fast. It gets too cute and you lose the feeling of plausibility of all these magical things that are happening because there's nothing to tether you to the real world. Diana Wynne Jones is never cutesy. All of her whimsy is tied to pretty dark, hard truths about life and in Howl's Moving Castle, largely about beauty and aging, because Sophie has a spell cast on her where she's turned into an old woman. I would really recommend reading this book aloud. Sophie's power is to talk life into objects, and if you think about it, when you read a book aloud to somebody, the exact same thing is happening there. You're breathing life into this world that she created.
0: The guest list from Lee Bardugo,
2: her new fantasy novel, Shadow and Bone, comes out this week. Enrico, for the record, my fantasy world involves people using their turn signals, (laughs) no airline baggage fees, and a smartphone with a strong and constant signal that allows me to understand the person I'm speaking with. You have an incredible imagination
0: (laughs) that is unencumbered by reality. Thanks. It would be a one-part series called We Can Do Better, People. Sounds great. (laughs) <laughs> okay, folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, blues rock legend Buddy Guy shares his doubts.
9: Man, I still don't think I'm good enough to be singing for an audience.
0: We'll be the judge of that when The Dinner Party returns.
2: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up,
0: Vizan Pajot and James Swirsky, directors of the new documentary Indie Game make us care about something called Super Meat Boy, <laughs> and legendary blues rocker Buddy Guy gives us directions to his hometown, or at least tries to. It's on a route
9: one. <laughs> you got to know where you're going to turn off. Otherwise, you never will find it. I don't think your GPS will find it. Don't worry. We'll get there. Yeah. But first, it's time for
2: our etiquette segment.
0: Yes, each week, listeners send in their questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is sports writer Frank DeFord. He just did his 1,500th commentary about sports for NPR's Morning Edition. He is a senior contributing writer to Sports Illustrated. And his new book is called, "Overtime: My Life as a Sports Writer. And Frank, welcome. Nice to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you started as a sports writer with Sports Illustrated back in 1962. A lot has changed in sports journalism since then. What change has most excited you?
10: Well, the fact that everything is on television now. (laughs) Good. The fact that all games. Well, yeah. I mean, it makes it so much easier to get a handle on things. On the other hand, there are no secrets anymore. You, you, you can't discover anyone. Sports Illustrated, for example, has a kid on the cover who's 17 years old. Yeah. That didn't happen <laughs> yeah. back then. You wouldn't know. S- nobody knew who these high school players are. Now they're practically out of diapers.
2: Well, LeBron James' ascent was yeah, yeah, monitored
10: from, from high school. Yeah, and, and, school so, and yeah. so there's no backwoods in sports <laughs> anymore. <laughs> yeah. I had some great
0: backwoods stories. When you look <laughs> back, who's the the discovery that you're kind of most proud of? Well,
10: I discovered Bobby Orr, the great hockey player. Yeah. Not because I was smart or anything, but because... <laughs> I was covering basketball at the time. And the <laughs> Bruins, the Boston hockey team, was the worst team. But the Boston Celtics writers would talk about this kid in Canada who was owned by the Bruins. In Canada, you could sort of own hockey players, practically take them away from their mother's breast <laughs> when they were being weaned oh, <laughs> and put skates on them. And so I would hear about Bobby Orr when he was 14, 15, 16 years old. And when he was really ready to play at 18, I told sports what's illustrated that, that I knew who the next great hockey player was. And they believed you. And, and they believed you. me. And I was and right. You were right. I was right. <laughs> you were right. You, you know, that's backwoods <laughs> the stuff, <next> man. <laughs> you can't do backwoods stuff. <laughs> and they they would have... Every hockey person in the world would have known about Bobby Orr today if he if he came along when he was 12 years old. Yeah, Completely. right. He would have been on
0: the front cover at age 12 or something. He
10: would have been on the cover of Sports <laughs> Illustrated already. Somebody like me, a basketball writer, couldn't have discovered him. Amazing. Well, maybe
2: this etiquette segment is perfect for you because you can help our guests discover answers to their, ah, their sports. Right. You like that pivot? Nice segue. It was okay. So we're going to ask some questions. All right. All right. This one comes from Chris in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yes. There mm-hmm. we go. Great sports town. And the question is, I think it's a great example of sportsmanship when soccer players from opposing teams trade jerseys at the end of a match. Uh, we Americans see this most often during the World Cup. Why don't other sports do that? Well, Chris, there is one other sport
10: that's always done in America, and that's crew races. We're really, Rowing. Mm. I think the crew guys do it after almost every race. You can't, you can't take your shirts off after every game. Why not? You'd run out of shirts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's and true. also... us <laughs> <It costs> money. <laughs> can you imagine a football player trying to trade his shirt, getting it over the shoulder pads and all that sort of thing? So That, that would will, be awkward. That yeah. limits the number of <laughs> sports yeah. that you can do this sort of thing. And then I don't like the idea of copycat. If you were a... Uh, Basketball player, for example, to take your shirt yeah, off, and everybody say, "What does he think he is?
2: A soccer player?" <laughs> that's and, right. And if some baseball players took their shirts off, people would leave. The, they, fam, the I, fans I, would run. I don't Shots want to see off. that. Let the, <laughs> Let
10: the soccer players and the crew racers take their shirts off as they've done for a century. But but for goodness sake, let's not have copycat-ism in, in sports. There right. you go, Chris. It's a
0: matter of tradition. <laughs> uh, all right, here's something from Robert in Chicago, Illinois. Talk about your great sports downs. Uh, why is it, despite the Cubs, why, why is it still tacitly accepted by baseball announcers, coaches, players, et cetera, for pitchers to bean opposing players and settle a score it seems vindictive and many players get injured this way i feel like that part of baseball tradition should be left in the past
2: very public radio question
10: yeah robert <laughs> robert for goodness <laughs> sakes don't be such a sissy <laughs> Really? Now, first of all, they don't bean. Bean means hitting a guy in the head. Now, that's serious. Nobody beans anybody. As a matter of fact, if you want to bean someone, you know where you throw the ball? Where? You throw it behind his head. Because nobody ducks forward. If you see uh-huh. a ball coming near your head, yeah. you duck back. So if you really want to kill somebody yeah. in baseball, you throw the ball behind his head. I oh. like how
2: you turned this question into a tutorial. Yeah. You see,
0: Robert? <laughs> We've learned something today.
10: Yeah. But what we're really talking about here is brushback. That's a great word, brushback pitches. And a little retaliation in baseball is, is good. To, to get hit on the bicep or the thigh... Yeah. They can handle that. You yeah. get a little bruise. This is right? why they take
2: growth hormones. We're, so not, you, yeah. we're, we're not talking
10: about concussions in football. We're talking about a little bruise. You know, rub it with a rock and get out there and place <laughs> Does that work?
0: Right. Rubbing
2: with a rock? Yeah, I, that's what they always say. Rub it with a rock. Get out there, baby. All right. I think, Robert, you have your answer. Yeah, there you go. All right. So we have a question from David in Fort Collins, Colorado. I don't know what sports they play there. Snowshoeing. The question is, at what age should a grown man stop wearing their team's sports jersey in public? To me, it's always disconcerting to see a 40-plus-year-old guy at the grocery store wearing a Tebow 15 Denver Broncos jersey. Young grade schoolboys, no problem. So when is it not cool?
10: I I think David has a a good point here. Really? I think the answer should be... You can only wear a shirt someone your age. In other words, oh. how old is Peyton Manning? 35, 36? Yeah, yeah. So it would be okay for a thirty five <laughs> year old man to oh, wear I like a this. Peyton yeah. Manning. Interesting. Shirt, but not a thirty eight year old no. man. Then you've gone over. It. <laughs> yeah. Now the only difference the only difference uh-huh. is baseball. Now think about this. Mm-hmm. Baseball managers, no matter how old they are, dress like children. That's that's true. Jack McKeon was managing the Miami, they were then the Florida Marlins last year at the age of 80. Yeah. And wearing. Looks like a toddler. Wearing clothes. Wearing, you know. So if you want to wear a baseball manager's. Uniform, go right ahead. You can do it up to the age
2: of 80.
0: (laughs) This is a great rule of thumb. I like it, although it does require a whole lot of trivia knowledge on the part of the sports fan. You got to know the ages of all your guys.
2: Basically, you can always wear a manager's uniform, but other than that, you're topping off around your mid 30s. Well, Colorado
10: has Jamie Moyer pitching at the age of 49. That's incredible. So, you want to wear a Jamie Moyer? (laughs) Shirt and you're 48, go, go for it. Go for it. So
0: the advice is if you're middle-aged and you really like baseball jerseys, you better quick become a Jamie Moyer fan.
10: Cool. Uh,
2: I'm sorry. Yeah, I think what Frank is really saying is you should really be thinking about getting a different wardrobe when you're on go to the <laughs> al- Go to the almanac, check out the guys who are your yeah. age. I like this. It's DeFortimetrics. That's it. As applied to fashion. Yeah,
0: and I like the symmetry. We You started here telling us why we shouldn't take off our sports jerseys, and now we know when we should. Yeah. I like this. Frank DeFord, his new memoir is called Overtime. Frank, thanks for telling our audience how to behave.
2: Thank you, Rico. Thank you, Brendan. And ladies and gentlemen, like sports, the game of life has rules. Yes,
0: and each week we bring on a different guest, the likes of Mr. DeFord, to play referee. If you have any etiquette questions or if you find yourself in an awkward situation.
2: Or you just want to know exactly how to hurt someone with a baseball. Yes. Contact us at dinnerpartydownload.org and tell us what your problem is.
0: Or you can call the phone at Brendan's Cubicle. The number is 213-621-3554.
11: to eavesdrop.
2: Guitar legend Buddy Guy helped pioneer the famous Chicago blues sound of the late 50s and 60s. His music influenced guitar greats like Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, and Stevie Ray Vaughan. He just published a memoir, and today we overhear him telling a dinner party-worthy story about his first paying gig.
9: Hi, I'm Buddy Guy. I got a new book out entitled When I Left Home. And I'm a self-taught guitar player, and I'm trying to explain to you why I came from and why I would love to go. I grew up in Louisiana in a little town called Lettsworth, Louisiana. If, uh, if you can't understand when, when I say Lettsworth, it's spelled L-E-T-T-S-W-O-R-T-H. And it's on a route one. <laughs> you got to know where you're going to turn off, otherwise you never will find it. I don't think your GPS will find it. Well, I was working at a gas station and back then you didn't pump your own gas, you know. I had to run out to the pump every time you drive up, we didn't have the new pump. The pump was sitting out there in open sunshine with no shade over it and uh, 98 degrees. Somebody had told a guy by the name of Big Papa that I could play and he came by the station. And had an amplifier in the car and a guitar and plugged it up. And uh, of course the guy who owned the stage said, "Come on, I want to hear you play that thing." And I went to playing John Lee Hooker's "Boogie Children and Hank Ballard's work with man, and he whispered in my ear, he said, "How much you make here?" I said, "I think I was making about, I think 12,13 a week or something like that, maybe not that much. And uh, he said, uh, I heard you want to go to school because my mother had taken a stroke. She couldn't afford to send me to school. So I said, well, maybe I could play at night now and go to school that day if I can make enough money playing the guitar. And he asked me to come by and play with him. He played harmonica because he, he didn't sing. So he wanted me to turn around and sing to the audience. I said to myself, I sung for you, but I ain't ready to sing for no audience now because I was too shy, man. I still don't think I'm good enough to be singing for an audience to show you how I felt about that. But I said, well, man, I can't look out at these people. I was too shy to play. I said, but if you let me turn my back to the audience, I will sing, work with men. And I did. And they start screaming. I want to see him. And I start crying. I said, man, I can't turn around. So I was too nervous and too shy to face the audience. I turned my back and uh, that was the end of that. I got fired and went back to pumping gas. And then my friend heard about it. He said, I got some schoolboy scotch, which was wine. And he said, you're gonna turn around and you're gonna play after you drank this schoolboy scotch. And uh, and I drank that uh, uh, shot glass of wine and I turned around. I've been turned around ever since. Blues legend Buddy Guy. His new
2: memoir is called When I Left Home, My Story. Hey, uh, will you face the mic, please? His memoir is called When I Left Home, My Story. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Thank you.
0: And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where we ask an expert to school us on some dinner-party-worthy topic. This week, the topic is independent video games. And our teachers are Lizanne Peugeot and James Swirsky. Their debut feature documentary called Indie Game is playing some theaters now and comes out digitally June 12th. It follows several designers as they struggle to make quirky, personal games outside of the mainstream gaming industry. Lizanne, hello. Hi. And hello, James. Hello. So... Before we get into indie games themselves, I can practically hear some of our listeners asking, "Who cares? <laughs> like, why should we care if these guys complete their silly little games or not?" That's
3: a good question. Um, <laughs> because if if they didn't complete their games, the world would be missing a a very you know kind of innovative voice in, in video games, which is you know kind of growing as a medium and and becoming more and more important. You're you're getting games that are more personal. They're they're kind of pushing boundaries of what a game is and what a game can do. And, you know, if we didn't have independent games, we would just have Madden. We would have Madden after Madden after Madden. The sports games. Yeah. The yeah.
0: John Madden sports franchises. The games you follow in this film are not like that. Maybe by way of example, you can uh, describe one of the games that's central to mm-hmm. the movie. It's called Super Meat Boy.
11: Yeah, Super Meat Boy is about this cube of meat. and It's it's
0: it's a cute cube of meat, I should note. It's
11: a cute cube um, uh, that is, you know, trying to save his girlfriend that's made out of bandages from an yes. evil doctor in a fetus in a jar wearing a top hat and a monocle.
0: So, you know, just standard. Yeah,
11: you know. It's, <laughs> Video game uh, tropes. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that game is in is in pixel art.
0: Like the 80s kind of Nintendo art. Yeah. Yeah.
11: yeah. yeah. But then the, another game that we feature in the film and we show a wide spectrum is a game called Braid, which is done in, in sort of an impressionist painterly style. So they all look different.
3: But but there's usually kind of when you're playing and in, in looking at an independent game, you get a sense that it was made by someone. It was and it was made by someone who has a distinct vision. When when making Super Meat Boy, Tommy and Edmund wanted to make kind of like this love letter to their 13-year-old selves. Make the (laughs) ultimate game. And apparently it would be Super Meat Boy for those guys.
0: (laughs) Well, you are clearly passionate about these games now, but you were not gamers before you started making this movie. What surprised you about this world as you were making the film?
11: The the biggest sort of thing that I I took away, I I got a sense that uh, making games was hard in in general, just sort of an initial research. But making games is really hard. There's so many things that can screw up in the code, in the engine, the gameplay. It's a a tricky thing. Yeah.
3: yeah. Every game that ships is like this little miracle, you know, because there's so many fail points. And, you know, and there's so many fail points when you have 30 people working on it, when you have 100 people working on it, but when you only have one or two people on it, Mm -hmm. and you throw all that stuff that they have to get working in order to make the game actually playable and shippable, it's uh, just amazing.
11: I think there's also something that you learn is that what I learned is people make decisions in games. They don't just Happen. There's all this thought. You know, you think a game is just fun, it's this thing you play. But people are, you know, designing the experience, and that's a whole different kind of art form in its own right.
0: It is amazing. There are actually several times during the movie where I was kind of amazed watching these designers. They almost have to have some understanding of human psychology in the way that people play games. I'm thinking especially of the guy who designed Braid. At one point in the film, he's talking about why he decided to place a ladder in the game in a certain position. And the design of a level like this is it's sort of a dialogue where it's like, hey, check this out, you know? Did you realize that you were gonna have a problem coming up that ladder, right? Isn't it weird but cool that you can have so much of a problem just because this ladder is a little bit to the left? If it was over here or over here, you wouldn't have that problem. That is the interesting part. That's the important part. It's not important that it's a tricky puzzle that takes some thinking to solve. What any particular game can give you is interesting insights into
2: particular situations.
0: There's also must be some kind of genius involved in making video games as addictive as they are, which is, of course, one of the goals of making a video game, to make you want to play it constantly. In making the film, have you sort of figured out what it is that makes a game addictive?
11: There's two kinds of ways that, like, in terms of what I learned, in ways that uh, games can you can make you want to play lots. There's where the game is a slot machine for you. It, it's creating the same effect of a slot machine. A lot of games do that and use that.
0: It's about acquiring points or something. Yeah. yeah.
11: And I think there's there's another way, and and I think the way that some of the designers in the film do it is they create uh, a way of teaching you different skills in a methodical way that makes you feel smarter each time, and mm. as a result, you get better as a player as you play. If a game is designed well, it's teaching you all these different skills that once you get good at them, you can start, you know, accomplishing things.
0: Is there a game that uh, in the course of making this film you became addicted to? Uh,
3: <laughs> I, I totally became addicted to Super Meat Boy. I actually like... Really? alien abduction, passage of time type of addiction, you know, where I would be like, I, I just thought I'd go and knock off a couple levels, right? And I remember this one time we had to go run some errands and um, Lizanne was getting ready and she was, she was going to take like 15 minutes to get ready. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just play a little bit of Super Meat Boy. It's research. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Totally. And uh, so I sat down to start playing it and really, really enjoyed it, got sucked into it. And then I look up and there's Lizanne standing with with groceries, and a whole bunch of stuff that we were supposed to get on this errand trip. And it had been uh, an hour and a half. I honest to God thought it was about 10 minutes. Oh my God! That game just had my number.
0: And Brendan, uh, a yeah. lot of indie games are very unusual, but that doesn't mean that they are unpopular. According to this movie, Super Meat Boy has sold over a million copies. That is <laughs> Super right.
2: Meat. Man, so we've been doing things all wrong. How, in what? In, instead of doing stories about meat, we should be making games about meat.
0: <laughs> that is true. Or we could put meat in cinnamon buns with parsnip. Which Delicious. Is, yeah, which is what we're going to hear about after a short break. You are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Newham. In a few minutes, we'll hear from master filmmaker Michael Apted about his celebrated new documentary.
0: Yes, it was 56 years in the making. But first, it's time for the
2: main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner
0: party, the food.
2: So, Rico, there's a long tradition in food of chefs taking traditionally sweet foods and making them savory. Right. Or taking savory foods and making them sweet. For
0: instance, the bubble burger. Which is the bubble gum but, shaped like a hamburger.
2: All right, sort of, but no. There's, there's burger and <laughs> sweet in it. No. I was thinking of something more refined. like There's a refined f- sugar in it. <laughs> like a new food item I just encountered called the sticky pork roll. I don't know. Pork gum sounds gross. It's not gum. Oh. <laughs> not interested. Instead, it's a tasty handheld treat. All right. uh, they're made by Northern Spy which is a restaurant in New York that just opened up a food cart on the High Line, which is an elevated public park. Uh, yes. uh, the cart sells biscuits and ham and kale salad, but the sticky pork roll is the star of the show. I met with Chris Ronas, one of the owners, and asked him to describe it.
4: It's a sweet and savory pastry. It's a pastry dough that is wrapped around pulled pork. Pulled pork has a nice savory seasoning, a little bit of cinnamon. There's maple and Dijon mustard in there. Then we glaze the whole bun with a maple Dijon glaze, and then we finish it with a parsnip icing.
2: Parsnip icing. So wh- where did you get the idea to do parsnip icing?
4: That really ties into our restaurant. This item came out in the dead of winter. We do mostly seasonal, uh, almost entirely local produce and meat at our restaurant. And you know, you're in December, you've got root vegetables, you've got parsnips, you've got carrots, potatoes, you got meat, and that parsnip icing was You know perfect for the season and but it's got the right amount of sweetness and lightness to it and we're gonna keep running with it it's it's really delicious
2: the parsnip people must be totally excited this is probably the best thing that's happened to parsnips in a long time right
4: this is probably the best thing that's happened to parsnip i mean it definitely gets a bad rap uh, parsnips but mostly people ask what is a parsnip and then when you try to describe it to them it's not the most appealing sounding item it's a white carrot that a lot less sweet than a carrot, but you know it actually has like a really nice earthiness to it, and it's really complemented by, by sweetness. Um, sort of the way carrots can go either savory or sweet, a parsnip can go savory or sweet, so I think we found a nice middle ground.
2: And it's key to the visual pun here, because I'm, I'm looking at this item, basically this looks like a cinnamon bun the parsnip is drizzled around as if it's icing on the cake.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is inspiration from the mall. While our restaurant is known for local and seasonal cuisine and being very rustic and simple, we all grew up eating Cinnabon at the mall. So this is where it comes from. This
2: is like the fanciest Cinnabon in the world.
4: <laughs> yes, it's the fanciest Cinnabon in the world. And we, we have a lot of people asking us what it is when they see the name listed, and we tell them it's like a cinnamon bun with pulled pork maple Dijon glaze and parsnip icing in it, and people's eyes kinda start start popping out of their heads. Are you able to patent foods like this? I don't know about that, but uh, it's giving me a good idea. Because Korean barbecue tacos, which we covered a
2: couple years ago at the very beginning of the craze, now Applebee's sells Korean barbecue tacos.
4: It's really interesting, We we see trends like that, ending up in places like Applebee's, like Applewood smoked bacon is a, is a great example. You know, we almost had that on our menu when we opened the restaurant and then we stopped and we we're like, wait, Quiznos has Apple Applewood smoked bacon and we need to, you know, you need to think about what that next thing is. And um, I think uh, sweet and savory has really been uh, a huge trend, you know, especially with salted caramel, salted chocolate. So this idea of clashing pastry with, with savory items. I think that's you know, something that, that people are going to start to find interesting.
2: Well, I mean, it was almost, it's almost like it was designed by a think tank, right? Because it's handheld, it's attractive, and there's pork in it. I mean, it's almost, t- it's the nail two on the head, no?
4: That's the funny thing, you know? If we had tried to give this any, any more of an esoteric name, nobody would notice it. But it says, Sticky Pork Roll.
2: I will say with the name, though, when I first saw it, I think I saw it on Twitter. Someone tweeted about the Sticky Pork Roll. Immediately, I think of, like, Asian food. Like, I, I think of almost the bun.
4: Right. So, you know, that's something that, that we are, are fighting against is the, uh, the tendency to call it a bun. When we first came out with it, at, even in the restaurant internally, we were calling it our, our pork buns. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting the good fight for the roll. Who's the chef that created this dish? Chef Hadley Schmidt. He's been with the restaurant for about eight months now. Hadley comes from a, a fine dining background. When he came to us, uh, we gave him sort of free reign. He could elevate our rustic cuisine however he wanted at dinner, but his challenge was to still bridge the gap between our, our real fun, lighthearted brunch and this sort of a little bit more fine dining dinner. So uh, Hadley came up with a, this sort of perfect bridge, which is this pork sticky roll.
2: I wonder if chefs ever get sad, like that they work really hard on kind of more classic meals. Then, you know, they kind of do like a little visual pun like this and it gets lots of attention.
4: It's funny about chefs. They. Working in restaurants, they get to do elevated cuisine, fine dining, really beautiful things on the plate. But you know how, what chefs eat at night? They eat sandwiches, they eat ribs, they, you know, they want a barbecue on their days off. They want really simple, really hearty cuisine. All right, I want to I try some of this. Should I eat this with a fork? You should not eat that with a fork. Don't tell anyone I tried to eat that with a fork. And that's the pork at the bottom there? What is the dough? It's a traditional yeast dough, so these are proofed and they rise before they're, before they're baked.
2: All right, I'm gonna go for it. Mm.
4: There's like a mustardy edge to that as well. It's dijon and maple that are in the in the pork itself, and then we glaze the outside of the bun before outside of the roll. See how I'm slipping? And then we heat them in in a warming oven, and then when they come out, they get the parsnip icing on top. And this could this
2: almost could work for breakfast or lunch.
4: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, we do this at, at breakfast and lunch at the restaurant, and then we serve them straight through dinner.
2: This is totally changing my world view on parsnips. I'll tell you that.
4: <laughs> That's fantastic.
2: I think you should get you could get a sponsorship from the Parsnip Foundation or something.
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how strong the parsnip lobby is, but uh, hopefully, there's you know, there's some way we can.
2: They're meeting with Cinnabon right now, probably. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Enrico, it's pretty interesting. The High Line, where Northern Spies cart is located, yes. is this really beautiful park converted from an elevated train track.
0: I'm familiar
2: with it. Yeah. So years ago, trains used the tracks to deliver perishable food into town. And this year, for the first time in ages, food's back on those tracks in the form uh, of these food carts.
0: Uh, very nice. Do you? Uh, you don't need a rail pass though to eat there or anything.
2: Do you? No, no, no. You just need a stick with a handkerchief with all your stuff in it, you know, over your shoulder. <laughs>
0: It's <laughs> delightful. Yeah,
2: hobo chic. It's old fashioned.
0: Folks, you can jump aboard our digital boxcar. You are welcome to visit dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is filmmaker Michael Apted. He directed the Oscar winning movie Coal Miner's Daughter and more recently, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the latest installment of the Narnia movie franchise. But since 1971, he has also directed the documentary series Up, in which he has followed the same group of Britons every seven years as they've grown up. Roger Ebert put it on his list of the greatest films of all time. It's certainly on mine. This week, the latest installment, 56 Up, finished its three-episode run on British television. And Michael, welcome. Good to be talking to you. And likewise, the the first film, Seven Up, was shot in 1964, but you didn't direct that one. How did this come to be your baby seven years later?
8: Well, I researched the original one. I was one of the two researchers sent out to find a group of seven-year-old children who would, as it were, represent the English society of 1964, class-ridden, as it were. The film was only ever going to be one film, and there was never any thought of carrying it on, but it was successful, and eventually... I was asked, well, have you thought of going back to seeing how all the children are doing? I said, oh, that might be a good idea. And although it was a bit of a slightly stressful film, there was a lot of grumpy teenagers there. You know, you could see the beginnings of something that I'd describe as a big idea. So from then on, it was really a no-brainer just to keep going back every seven years. It's, I think, the most rewarding and enriching professional experience I've ever had.
0: Now that said, though, this uh, the series began, as you mentioned, uh, as I look at the British class system. The idea was that by age seven, you might already be able to see where these kids might end up. If like the rich ones were already planning whether they'd go to Oxford or Cambridge, for instance. That's correct, yeah. And are arguing about what newspapers they read.
7: I read the Financial Times. I read Observer and the Times. I like my newspaper because I got shares in it.
8: Do you think that that's proven true? I think it is proven true, but had I started the film a decade later, it might well have had a different outcome. And I think for the generation that was born in the mid-50s, the Mm. class system did determine. The, the, The wealthy people knew how their education was going to plan out, and it did, and the less empowered really didn't have much idea what was going on, and that doesn't mean they didn't have happy, successful lives, but as far as opportunities and options go, I I think the class system did deliver itself in that generation.
0: Something that you've mentioned in other interviews, too, is that you wish that you had accounted more for, you know, you didn't have
8: feminism when you did this. Yeah, I mean, we missed that. I mean, it's a bad mistake because for me in my lifetime, you know, the most important revolution, really, was the changing role of women in in society, in every area of society, and we miss that. How, how would you have done things differently? Well, I would have had, you know, seven men, seven women, frankly. it would have been You have only four women. An equal balance, but, you know, in 1964, we were looking at... Uh, the picture of english society and it's a dreadful thing to say but women didn't really figure in it and if we were looking who's going to be running the country in the year 2000 which is one of the taglines really of the original film mm. you wouldn't have put a lot of women up there in fact you know <laughs> we had a prime woman prime minister <laughs> not right. not too long after you know in, in the 70s and 80s and so we were way wrong
0: and there's other things that you missed uh, obviously necessarily several of the the now 56 year old characters remark in this film about how dissatisfied they are with their portrayals in the series, that you can, you can only show a small slice of their lives, and yet from that audiences think they know who they all are. I think
7: I'd like to say this, and I'd like to say that. And then they film me sort of doing all this deft stuff, and it goes on, you know, seven days out of every seven years. It's sort of biblical something or other, and, you know, it's all this excitement and so on. And then they present this tiny little snippet of your life, and it's like, that's all there is to yeah. me?
0: I'm sure you shoot hours and hours of footage of these people. How do you decide what slice of them to show, especially knowing that that's the case? You know, they're going to be judged
8: on what you show. Well, I mean, it's a a judgment call. I mean, on my part, every time, not only am I limited by what I'm shooting now, but I have to be careful of how much of the past I use. You know, it's a tricky balance because that's my greatest card. You know, the advantage I've got over every other film is I've got their past. (laughs) If they (laughs) talk about the past, lo and behold, there it is. It is an issue, and of course they complain about it, but I'm happy to listen to the complaints because that in some ways draws the audience's attention to it, that by no means is this a comprehensive look at a person's life you know these are choices that I made
0: but on the other hand I have to say I had to laugh when the characters bemoan your time constraints because I mean each installment is hours long there have been eight of them they've been now yeah this is
8: the eighth film yeah
0: there's a lot more time than most
8: documentaries have to tell a story well, precisely you know that I mean we can't look a gift horse in the mouth I mean it's brilliant that Granada Television have supported the film over nearly 50 years. What other broadcaster would have done that? That's true. But I actually wonder how you, as a filmmaker, are
0: able to turn from this series, which really gains power from watching people closely for long, long periods of time, to a regular movie where you have two hours max to tell an entire story.
8: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a different animal. You know, I, I've always felt that my heart is, as a documentarian, but they, they both have their irritations. You know, when I'm doing a documentary, I think even something like The apps, I said, why can't they say that quicker? Why can't they say it like this? If I had a good writer, I could do it much quicker. <laughs> you know, and then doing the other things, I think, why do I have to have all this equipment and everything's so slow, and why won't the actors come out of their trailers and all this, you know? <laughs> so each has their burden, but I think one helps the other. They both help each other. I wanted to add something that you
0: brought up earlier. You, you have the opportunity of having all these characters passed, and something that you do repeatedly, and I love these, is where you'll show a montage of them through time, saying something that they're absolutely sure of, contradicting it seven years later, and then what they're saying today, which is something totally different.
6: Yes, I'd say I believed in God. I go to church with my parents on Sundays. Uh, I don't know even now whether I do believe in God or not.
7: I'm a lay minister. Uh, I'm licensed to carry out quite a number of functions. It includes leading services.
0: It's mind-blowing to me because I guess it makes me question yeah. anything that's that I
8: believe at any point. It's. I now know that seven years from now I may not even remember having said it. Yeah, I think that's uh, an astute observation. And going back to your very first question, <clears throat> while there's a certain predictability and certainly the educational choices that they all had because of their class, I don't think there's anything predictable about you know, the issues they've had to face with in life and the way they've handled them and the way it's formed their characters. While I think you can definitely, in the 56 face, see the little seven-year-old kind of beaming at you, I I don't think you could predict, Mm. you know, what's happened to a lot of these people.
0: All right, we have two questions that we ask each guest on our program. The first is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Question I would least,
8: what hobbies do I have? Really? I would think that there'd be a chance not to talk about movies. Well, I don't have hobbies. That's why I don't (laughs) like to be asked. Really? That is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I keep working, although I'm now in my early 70s, I'm kind of petrified of stopping to work. Because what am I going to do? <laughs> Apart from drive my partner Paige Stark raving mad. You just don't do anything except make movies all day. No, I have a lot of things. I mean, I'm a great sports fan. I like to read. I like to ride my bicycle. But I mean, those are hobbies. these are hardly conversation stoppers. <laughs> and they are. They're not exactly very... I mean, if I said I played the lute or this. wrote poetry, that would be all right. I don't know. We
0: got a decent enough conversation out of the fact that you don't have a hobby. That's interesting. <laughs> um, the, you've sort of answered my second question, but I'll throw it at you anyway, which is to tell us something we don't know, either about yourself like that or uh, just something about the world in general. Oh,
8: God. I mean, I, I just have a very unhealthy interest in, in, in sport, I think. And, uh yeah. I'm ridiculously passionate about it, and I, I do put out a kind of calm exterior, but can you know I can throw things at the television and all sorts of things under the slightest provocation, and I'm a very, very poor driver. <laughs> I'm possessed in certain situations. <laughs>
0: And Brendan, 56 Up, will eventually come to the USA in the form of a theatrical film, as all the other installments in the series have. Mm -hmm. They don't have a release date for it yet, but that means there is time to catch up on the earlier movies. They are on DVD, and you can stream them
2: on Netflix. Seven movies, right? That is correct. So I'm going to do a series of documentaries about me watching all these movies? (laughs) It's a commitment. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Jackson Musker is our assistant producer, thanks to Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Bill Lance, Peter Clowney, Judy McAlpin, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace.
0: And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
2: The band Fish is usually the first thing to come to mind when people think of Vermont's music scene, Mm -hmm. but Kyle Thomas is doing his best to change that. He was in the experimental folk band Feathers the metal band Witch, and the garage pop band Happy Birthday. Man. Yeah, he's a busy guy. This week, he released his first solo album on sub-pop under the name King Tough. Here's a track from it called Bad Thing.
0: Which I actually would describe as garage pop folk metal. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico
2: Galliano, and I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And hey, pal, you got something to eat? I am famished. Oh, sure
0: thing, buddy. Here you go.
2: Man, don't you have anything in that handkerchief except parsnips? Hey,
0: that's a bubble parsnip. Oh.